All right. Our first scripture reading this morning is from the 12th chapter of the letter of Paul to the Romans, uh, found on page 151 in the New Testament of your Pew Bible. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned to you. For as in one body we have many members, and not all members have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members of one another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in ministering, the teacher in teaching, the exhorter in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. Our gospel lesson is Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Now then Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Or to put it another way, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the gospel of the Lord. Join your hearts with me in prayer. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength, our Redeemer. Amen. In many of uh, the Apostle Paul's letters to various churches throughout the New Testament Scriptures, the people to whom he writes, he makes an assumption. And the assumption is this, Paul presumes that they know what they do well. He presumes they know what their capacity is. And here in the 12th chapter of Romans, in his letter to the church in Rome, in verse 6, he says, we have gifts that differ according to the grace that is given to us. He then goes on to name a few examples. And in naming them, he commends a certain mindset associated with each of these gifts. But his assumption is that people already know what it is 
they're gifted to do. So this morning and in the week ahead, I want to give you a little assignment. I want you to consider this question. What do you do well? Or what are you good at? Or, for better grammar, at what are you good? As a pastoral counselor, I almost always ask this question in the introductory meeting with a new client. They'd immediately want to dive into whatever problem they had. I found their problems boring, so I'd try and delay that. And so I'd ask, what are you good at? What do you do well? And in almost every instance, the client was taken aback. Not only because they actually wanted to hear what their strengths were, but that they didn't think they were going to go to the counselor to talk about their strengths. They were there because they had weaknesses. They had problems. I don't have strength in these areas, and I want to talk about that. But before we got to that, I always explained, I want to know what strengths you bring to the table. What do you do well? What are you good at? It surprised me how few people could quickly answer what seems to be a simple question. But then again, we don't spend much time thinking about our strengths, do we? We spend most of our time talking about our compensatory actions against our weakness. I would have a much quicker answer to the question if I were to say, what do you do poorly? What are you really bad at? What do you not want to even try on a bet? The answer to the question, uh, what do you do poorly, is usually right on the front of mind. We're right there in front of it. But Paul makes the assumption in many of his letters that you already know what it is you do well. What are your gifts? And so this particular problem or concern that we begin to face, it's important, I think, for us to have sober judgment, as Paul says in Romans, about what we do well. One of the things that makes that question difficult is how we culturally define excellence. We cannot grab competence or capacity if we're not the best, right? There was a study made a few years back of Olympians on the medal stands, you know, gold, silver, bronze, and they studied the facial expressions of those who were receiving their medals. Obviously, the happiest one there had received gold, right? That's pretty simple to say. Gold was pretty pleased. Silver, on the other hand, was the saddest. Consistently, in the three that were there, the silver medal winner was disappointed, was frustrated, was angry. Bronze was just happy to be there. When you were in third place, it's like, well, you know, I could have been fourth. You know, somebody else could be standing here, and, you know, I'm pretty happy to be getting a medal. Isn't this cool? But when you're silver, you're thinking about it the other direction. You're looking up and saying, wow, if I'd trimmed off one more half second, or if I'd gotten one more point in the judging, I'd be standing where gold is. The sad face, the frustrated face, is the face of the person who comes in second. 
One of my favorite Spencer Tracy movies is Inherit the Wind. Inherit the Wind is the story of the Scopes trials. John T. Scopes in 1925 was arrested and charged with teaching human evolution in the schools in the state of Tennessee. There was a law against teaching evolution in the schools of Tennessee in 1925. Um, I don't know if Tennessee has restored that law or not, but it could have happened. In any case, he was arrested and he was tried and the trial was carried by radio all over the country and people tuned in for what were known as the Scopes trial. Jerome Lawrence and Robert Lee wrote a play called Inherit the Wind, which was a dramatization. It wasn't a perfect historic example. It was a dramatization of that trial. And in real life, the defense attorney for John Scopes was none other than Chicago's own Clarence Darrow. And the prosecution was the silver-tongued orator from Nebraska, William Jennings Bryant. And they sparred off in the courtroom with dramatic eloquence. And that's captured, to a certain extent, in Inherit the Wind. In history and in the play and the movie, uh, Scopes loses and is convicted of teaching human evolution, but he's only charged $100 fine which appalls the audience that was hoping that he'd be carried off and put into chains for teaching evolution. But in reality, it was a $100 fine, and that conviction was overturned in appeal as the courts determined that states couldn't decide what was and was not science based on the whims of legislators. It was perhaps a more enlightened age. In the play, there is a newspaper reporter whose name is Hornbeck and he is based loosely on the character of real life of H.L. Mencken and at the end of the play William Jennings Bryant or Brady as the character is called collapses in the heat of the courtroom and Hornbeck comments looking at Brady being attended to by doctors I wonder what it feels like to be almost president three times with a skull full of undelivered inauguration speeches. William Jennings Bryant ran for president of the United States three times, came in second three times, and Hornbeck wondered what it was like to be in that position. The Darrow character responds, something happens to an also-ran Something happens to the feet of the man who always comes in second in a foot race. He becomes a national unloved child, a balding orphan, an aging adolescent who never got the biggest piece of candy. Unloved children of all ages insinuate themselves into spotlights and printing presses. They stand on their heads and wiggle their feet and split pulpits with their pounding. Their tonsils turn into organ pipes. Show me a shouter, I'll show you, and also ran a might have been an almost was. Our culture makes a tragedy of number two. We are so obsessed with number one that we don't realize that such an obsession creates a world of losers. I had a friend who had received a silver medal in a national competition 
in a sport at which he excelled. And when he received the silver medal, he said, I am cursed for the rest of my life to hear the same question. Hey, who won gold? His success became an eternal reminder of what everyone else perceived as his failure. And so the apostle's concern when he talks to churches about what you do well is not a question about what are you greatest at doing. It's not Paul's looking for the world's most super Christian. He's not even looking to set his churches against each in competition. Look out, Philippi. If Ephesus is given more money than you are, you've got to be able to pass it up. In Corinth, he doesn't say, well, the reason why you're having problems is none of you are the best at the world at what you do. No, he simply wants people to have an honest opinion of where they personally excel. What do you do well? We as a community of faith do not have gifts so that we can compete with each other. It is not trying to figure out how First Presbyterian Church of LaGrange can be better than the United Methodist Church of LaGrange because that competition assumes if we're a little better than the Methodists, we're done, right? And we are. Wait. In his letter, Paul offers examples of things at which you can excel, things you can just be good at. It doesn't matter how you rate in the world. It matters in how you are able to apply your capacities and say, I'm pretty good at that. He suggests a few. He says, uh, prophecy, ministry, teaching, encouraging, giving, lending compassion, leading. It's not an exhaustive list. We could also include crafting, or writing, or cooking, or serving, or sporting and athletics, or coding, or healing with medicine, or painting, or caring, or building, or joking, or gardening, or listening. Any one of those categories are things at which you can excel, and those things at which you do well, Paul says, you need to know them. Why? Because in order to be the church, those are the things that God is asking you to give, to share. It's what you bring to the table of the church, the gifts that God has given to you, not to meet our requirements of churchiness, but to assemble our contributions to one another and discover exactly what God is calling us to be. Paul never suggests that the church needed to recruit committee members. There's not a verse in the entire New Testament that says, and they dispersed because the committee failed to have a quorum. Doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. Instead, the combined effect that we might call a committee was drawn together by the abilities of those who happened to be part of that particular community of faith. 
Paul never writes to the church of Corinth, you're having problems because no one is moderating your property committee. Or, no wonder your church has divisions, look how few people you have on your youth committee. Or, how can you call yourself a church when your choir has so few altos? But often, institutionally, that's the way that we evaluate the strength or weakness of a particular congregation. Paul suggests that congregations start with what they've got and with who they are and then design their mission and ministry from there. So when we come together as a community of faith, our first assumption should be when we see another person is you have exactly what this community needs. How do I know that? Because you came through the door and said hello. That each person, as they arrive, brings a unique set of strengths that is exactly what the Holy Spirit is saying our community needs in order to flourish. Which brings me now to the opening verses of our epistle lesson today. Sorry, I'm not going to get to the gospel reading. I had a few pages, but Chris did such a good job with the kids. We're going to gloss over that here. Let's just agree that Jesus was the Messiah, and we'll get back to that point, I'm sure, in some future sermon. Today and the days ahead, I want us to linger over our strengths that we as individuals and as a congregation, the things that we do well, because within that list, God is calling us into being. It defines who we are as God's people. Now, the opening verses of Romans 12, I remember almost on a brainstem level. Because after, as a kid in Sunday school, you memorized John 3.16 and Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23, one of the next things you had to learn was Romans 12, 1 and 2. And of course, I learned them in the language of the Apostles Paul, the King James Version. And Paul wrote, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be ye not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may know the good and perfect will of God. And there it stopped. That was all we had to memorize were those two verses in Romans 12. And of course, when you're a kid and you see words like, present your body a living sacrifice, immediately it turns into something significantly dramatic. And when you are doing this at the age of 11 or 12, there are many things about your body that you think you probably need to sacrifice, and it was a very weighty thing for us to have to think about. And it wasn't until years later I realized that by stopping at the end of verse 2, I had missed the point. That the point of the presentation of ourselves was not some kind of sacrificial self-denial and not being conformed to all the naughty things that the world was trying to get us to do. It was merely saying that you present yourselves as a living offering in order to be of mutual service to the community of faith. That that, by the mercies of God, is how we bond together in community by bringing the offering of our excellence, of our capacity, of our skill into relationship with others who do the same.
To present yourself as a living sacrifice means this great offering of who God has created you to be now has a place to be valued, to be offered up. And that doesn't conform to anything that the world tells you about you. That the world is saying, if you're not the best, we don't want to talk to you. If you're not coming in first, we don't want to hear from you. The distance between first and second and the honoraria for your speaking fee is astronomical. If you don't make the pros, you don't make it. But in the church of Jesus Christ, you simply bring what you do well, and it is exactly what this community desperately needs. Which brings me to my very last point, and it's not long. The best way that you can integrate and include the gifts of others is by pointing out your gratitude for their excellence. One of the ways that we help shape our young people and our middle-aged people and our elderly people is by constantly putting back to them our gratitude for their gifts. That is not conforming to the world. The world criticizes our weaknesses. The community of faith complements our gifts. And in that set of feedbacks, in that set of responses, we gradually learn what it is that we do well, that we reward people who bring offerings from their strengths, and that it is to our peril that we become critical of insufficiencies. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and affirm our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker and and in Jesus Christ, only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life of Christ. Amen.